0: and Candid Conversations. I am your host, Nico Perino, and our guest today is the writer James Kirchick. He's been a longtime ally, I think I can say ally, of Fires and the Cause of Free Expression. And as of this week, is a New York Times best-selling author of a new appropriately timed book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. James, good to have you on.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I assume you're happy with the response your book has received thus far?
1: Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I really can't complain. Uh, it's been very gratifying to get such a positive reaction from folks.
0: Yeah. And I and I have to give a shout out to my colleagues. I, I Well, I have to admit first, I haven't picked up the book. I haven't read it yet. It's in my queue for Audible. But my colleagues, Greg Lukianoff and Daniel yeah. Burnett, Daniel is our director of communications, are reading it. And I walked in when Daniel had it on his desk and I was like, wow, this is quite the doorstopper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading Robert Caro's LBJ books right now. It's like this kind of ah. looks like them.
1: Yeah, he was my he was my uh sort of model in writing this book, was was Caro. So Oh, was he? Yeah, yeah I
0: read uh, The Power Broker. Uh, I finished that at the end of last year, and I've been working my way through his LBJ tomes. And they're just fantastic, you know. Yeah. It's, it's it's really a a writing of the life and times of Lyndon Baines Johnson, which is how he puts it in there. It's not just simply a biography. No, right. It gives you a sense of the time and place. But uh, Greg was talking about how you fill the book with all these really interesting facts and anecdotes. He was saying something about how apparently, the, for our listeners who don't know, or Julia Child, the cooking TV yeah. personality, worked at the precursor to the CIA before she yeah. became famous. And he's like, your book's full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's been a while since you and I last talked, and uh, since then, you had mounted an historic and heroic petition campaign to become a member of the Yale Board of Trustees. Uh, you had the campaign to bring some sanity to the Yale Board uh, and to advocate for free speech and academic freedom for students and faculty on that campus. Unfortunately, it didn't quite turn out, I think, as many of us would have hoped, in part. And if I... Correct me if I'm recalling this right. Yale threw in some shenanigans last minute, uh, potentially to kind of thwart your attempt, or that might have been a different petition campaign at a different time. I think school. it was the
1: latter, the last petition campaign by a, another candidate named Victor Ash, and he got on the ballot. And the same day that he, it was announced that he got on the ballot, Yale announced that there would be no more elections, <laughs> uh, there, there would, there, 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 would be no petition candidates allowed, right? So there'd be elections, but with, with pre-selected candidates, but the process by which I was trying to get on the board and Victor got on, got on the ballot to get on the board, um, that process would, would be no more. So what, well, how, what's the normal process like to get on?
0: You just get appointed by someone yes, in authority? The, yes.
1: The Yale alumni association, which is basically an auxiliary of the university itself. They choose, they handpick two candidates. Uh, to alums, um, and that's it. So yes, yeah, so now it's it's uh, it's a complete completely undemocratic process. But
0: well, you're you're an alum. What do you think of all the stuff that's been happening at Yale lately? The shout down of the
1: at Yale Law School. It's really terrible. I mean, the event just a couple months ago in. Um, uh, again, with a lot of these issues, and we'll be talking about this, you know, re- related to, tra- to transgender issues, a lot of a lot of these free speech controversies have to do with LGBT issues. Um, and yeah, students in the name of uh, protecting transgender people, basically shutting down um, an event and the university not doing anything to, to uh, punish them for this, for violating the school's uh, free speech code, right? Not a speech code, a free speech yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot of institutions these days. They are not led by people with uh, spine is the problem.
0: Yeah. With very much courage. All we need to do is look to the Ilya Shapiro case at Georgetown university Absolutely. to see that, you know, at Yale, they have this other, it's a legal dispute with the faculty member that is ongoing. And my colleague, I believe it was Adam Goldstein who wrote it up, although I might be wrong about that. Anyway, in the filings, uh, the faculty member cites the Woodward Report, which is that yeah. famous statement from, I think, 1972, 1970s, uh, where Yale claims that at this university, we can think the unthinkable, say the unsayable, and mention the unmentionable, something like that. Uh and the faculty member cites this as saying, well, you know, this is a violation of my academic freedom rights. And then Yale's lawyers, lawyers disclaim that anything relating to the Woodward Port is actually university policy or wow. uh, v- values. So this is something that they tout on their own website as being wow. like the ethos of the university. But here they are in court when faculty members try to appeal to it uh, to vindicate their rights, saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's not what you think it is, uh, you know. And so it's uh, the idea that it's, it's, in that case, not even a parchment barrier.
1: So that's really, that's really unfortunate.
0: Yeah, fun times at Yale Law School and Yale University. So anyway, that's not the reason why we have you on the show today. Uh, I, was, I was struck by an article that you had out on Barry Weiss's Substack that came out last week, timed appropriately with your book, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Uh, it's called the First Amendment Created Gay America. And you argue in it that every advance gay people have made in this country has been the result of the exercise of free expression. But then you go on to say uh, that the gay community you know, of which you are a member doesn't appreciate the importance of free speech to their cause. And as a general principle, uh, they don't also appreciate the general principle um, that free speech should be upholded for all speakers. So Wanted to get your thoughts on that. Why do you believe that? We've had some people on this show before, uh, including Jonathan Rauch and Andrew Sullivan, who've made similar arguments to you as you about the importance of free speech to the gay community. But why do you feel as though those values are being abandoned?
1: I think like a lot in politics, once someone or a movement or a party, once they get into power, they are reluctant to perhaps maintain their fidelity to some of the values or the policies that they were advocating for when they didn't have power. Uh,
0: Well, were gay gay rights activists always advocating for free speech values in particular, explicitly, or were they just utilizing free speech rights?
1: That's a fair distinction. I think, well, it depends who we're talking about, but I certainly believe... If you look at a man like Frank Kameny, who I write about in my book, he was a Harvard-trained PhD astronomer who was fired from his job at the U.S. Army Map Service in 1957 because he was gay. And he became the first person to challenge his his firing, uh, which was a real uh, momentous uh, event because thousands of people had lost their jobs for being gay up to that point. The st- the social stigma of being identified as a homosexual in America was so strong that none of them wanted to publicly essentially come out. Right. Uh, yeah. Again, he does. And the arguments that he makes against the government firing him are all grounded in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights, in the Declaration of Independence, in the founding documents of this country. Uh, and he says, I am being denied my my equal rights, that my being gay has no bearing um, on my ability to do my job. I'm being discriminated against. Um, it is my First Amendment right to speak out against this you know cruel treatment. Uh, and he takes very strong advantage of it. And then they hold a meeting, uh, the first meeting of the Mattachine Society of Washington, which is the first sustained gay rights organization in America. They are meeting uh, in the Hay Adams Hotel room uh, in, a, in, in a room at the Hay Adams Hotel. and they're being surveilled by the FBI. In the Metropolitan Police Department, right? So, so a, a, a violation of their freedom of association. Uh, he launches the first gay rights picket outside the White House in 1965. So, I would definitely say that yes, they were uh, Frank Kennedy, in particular, the Matt, the Mattachine Society. They were uh, absolutely making an explicit case for the First Amendment for the freedom of association, right? What was one of the main Freedom of association is something that's often left out when we talk about the First Amendment. We just usually think speech. Yeah, well,
0: it's not explicitly stated in the First Amendment. You know, you have the right to speech and assembly. You know, association is a subsidiary or closely related. Yeah.
1: Assembly, freedom of assembly. But that was something that that gay people were absolutely their Freedom of assembly was violated routinely. You know, gay bars uh, were routinely raided. It was illegal to serve alcohol to homosexuals in many parts of this country. So, you know, gay people were really facing the brunt of the government's repression when it came to uh, the violation of the First Amendment, um, you know, the Stonewall uprising. Every, everyone knows about that. That was a, a response to police brutality, to, to police violating the, the freedom of assembly rights um, of gay people. So, yeah, I'm not sure if it was the most um, explicit or the or or. That, that 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 gay rights activists were necessarily making a case for the First Amendment, but they were absolutely utilizing it and and using it in a very very visible way. Uh, and it's absolutely the I mean that quote that the the headline of my article that the um, First Amendment created gay America. It's actually it's actually taken from um, an, an, an article by a by a gay legal scholar Dale Carpenter who who charts out the, just the the entire history. I mean, the first uh, gay rights cases that the Supreme Court heard did not have to do with gays in the military. They did not have to do with gay marriage. They had to do with uh, the obscenity laws being used in a very uh, unfair and discriminatory way against gay publications. And the first case um, that the Supreme Court dealt with was a magazine called One, uh, and it was not by any means obscene. It was, it was a small literary intellectual magazine that just published articles about homosexuality, about gay literature, about what it's like to be a gay person. This is all in the 1950s. Um, but the Los Angeles Postal Department you know, seized all the copies on the grounds that it was supposedly obscene. Uh, and that case was brought to the Supreme Court in, in one magazine and won. Um, and so the whole history of gay rights in this country, I think, is really attributable. Uh, to the to the First Amendment,
0: yeah. You say that one magazine wasn't obscene, right? But you yeah. write in your article that the headline for the magazine that was seized and prevented from distribution yeah. by the Postal Service was "homosexual
1: marriage" with a question mark.
0: With a question mark, yeah. But I think it's important to kind of scene set for our listeners, right? You have this amazing st- statistic in your article that it was something like seventy percent of Americans. I forget what year it was. Yeah, um, believed that homosexuals were a threat to children and to the yeah. larger society. Right today, uh, most Americans are supportive of gay rights, of uh, gay marriage. I think you put something like fifty-five percent of Republicans. You know, used yeah. to lead the opposition to it. You know, it wasn't too long ago that we had Barack Obama in two thousand eight running on a platform in which he opposed. Gay marriage, but now you have every corporation in the United States putting up gay fly prags or or putting together events, and so I think it's hard for the modern viewer to quite understand the attacks on gay Americans in our history, and in the context of this one case that you're talking about, which, as you know, we said went to the Supreme Court, vindicated the rights of the magazine in 1958. But you talk about how the word printed on the front of that magazine, homosexual, was taboo at the time. Mm. You talk about how upon the first outing of an American politician in 1942, the majority leader of the United States Senate Senate, decried an, quote, offense too loathsome to mention in the Senate or in any group of ladies and gentlemen. He's saying that it was too loathsome to mention that someone was homosexual in 1942. Contrast that with where we are at today. Um, I just think it's hard for the average American to kind of understand the attacks that you talk about. You know Frank Kameny, for example. This is a guy who, as you said, was fired for being gay, and then fast forward to—he's uh, passed, a long since passed—but he was given what was it, like the some of the highest civilian medal by Barack Obama? It was, or it was given to him by the, the the leader of what was the successor to the Map Service, who happened to themselves be gay,
1: right? They apologized. There's an official apology. Yeah, in 2009.
0: Yeah, so it's it. I think it's just you know important to kind of scene set some of that for people because it's hard to understand how far uh, the fight for these civil rights yeah. have come in in a relatively short period of time. Again, both presidential candidates in two thousand eight ran on a campaign platform opposing gay marriage.
1: Yeah, I mean that figure you cite of seventy percent of Americans believing that uh, gay men in particular uh, were potential child molesters that was nineteen seventy. Um, so 50 years ago, and I think it is important to remember this because um, particularly for younger people who've grown up in a world where uh, being gay is actual, or being LGBT or queer is sort of cool and trendy, um, it's hard to conceive of the fact that it was very much quite the opposite in this country. And not so long ago, um, as you say, 2008 was the first was was uh, a presidential election with, in which both major candidates ran very much so against against gay marriage. Um, and you talk to public polling experts, and they'll tell you that there is no social issue in which there's been a more uh, dramatic or swifter um, change in opinion than the issue of homosexuality not just gay marriage, but just the issue of homosexuality itself, acceptance of homosexuality, um, has gone up tremendously. And I think it has a lot to do with the opposite of what my book's title is, right, which is Secret City. And when things are kept secret, they are it's very easy to be afraid of them. It's very easy to have ignorance about those things or to, to be bigoted towards them. Um, to hate gay people and think awful things about them. And I'll draw a little parallel. Um, I was just watching this new documentary the other night. It's called The Janes. It's about a group of women in the 1960s who organized um, an underground abortion network uh, for women because this is when abortion was illegal. And they interviewed some women who got abortions before they were legal. and. I don't think it matters what your views are on abortion, whether you think it's immoral or should be legal, and I'm not here to talk about that. But I think it's really important that people know and people hear about what it was like to get an abortion when it was illegal, you know, how risky it was, the the, the how dangerous it was, right? The lack of safety procedures, uh, the criminal penalties. And again, whatever your thoughts are on abortion we should all be supportive of hearing more voices and more experiences and that that watching that documentary it really struck a chord with me because you know being gay was illegal in this country um and the stories that these women that these women were telling about having to get an abortion was very similar to the stories that gay people would tell about you know going to a gay bar and having to like knock three times and you know meeting and meeting in these secret places and just how how secrecy can really breed um, uh, all sorts of negative consequences. And I think when when homosexuality was this dangerous secret, gay people were accused of being, I, I write about how they were accused of being Nazis in World War II, and then they were accused of being communists during the Cold War. Uh, they're accused of being pedophiles in the 1970s. And we unfortunately see some of that similar rhetoric today. But the only way that you can break down those prejudices and those beliefs is by having a conversation, uh, is by talking to people. And I really think, you know, what, what, what changed hearts and minds in this country when it came to homosexuality is that people started coming out of the closet. And the average American who might not have known anyone who was openly gay, suddenly, oh, you know, my coworker, is gay, or my daughter is gay, right? Or, some, you know, public, public figures, celebrities, all sorts of people coming out of the woodwork. Um, and that's, you know, that might not be a First Amendment issue, but it's a it's a form of expression. Um,
0: well, you I mean, to a certain extent, you frame it that way in your article. And I, this is probably one of the more moving parts of your article. Uh, you write that the first thing gay people intuit about our sexuality is that we have we have to conceal it, such that coming out is fundamentally an exercise in free expression. And then you quote the former, you describe him as Soviet Jewish refusenik Natan Sharansky, who said, "Once I had done it, come out."
1: He's not coming out as gay. He's not. He's not. He's not gay. He's talking about coming out against uh, what he refers to as a double thinker, right? So being he. he oh, he's up- not gay. Okay. No, 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 no. He's talking about growing up under the Soviet Union. Um, um, and I'm drawing, so drawing
0: a comparison,
1: I'm drawing a comparison between what he writes of as being a double thinker, which is when you live in a, a totalitarian country, you have to be able to, you know, you have to say one thing to the commissar, right. And believe another thing separately in real. And I, and I felt that, that that's very similar to what the gay experience it was like, uh, it was like being a dissident in a, in a, in a communist country, but go ahead. Sorry.
0: No, no, no. I was no, that, that's important because apparently my reading comprehension wasn't good at that part of your article. But you, he said, once I had done it, uh, once I was no longer afraid, I realized what, I, what it was to be free. I could live with real people, enjoy real friendships, not the cautious, constricted conversations of winks and nods among fellow double thinkers. You start your piece, uh, and I think this is kind of an important discussion or thread to follow, you start your piece by telling the story of, and I hope that I get their names right, Rich Tafel and Yervashi Vade. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about them?
1: Uh, so Rich Tafel was the founder of uh, the Log Cabin Republicans, which is the gay Republican organization. It was founded in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and Yurvashi Vide was the president of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, which is the kind of real left-wing um, arm of the gay rights movement like the kind So of, these two you know, probably
0: don't agree much on, on anything, anything as far as anything policy. politically.
1: I mean, you know, Rich Rich Tafels a Republican. This is in the early 90s, right? So he's a he's a Reaganite. Arvashi Vide is, you know, going to anti-war demonstrations and a kind of crunchy, you know, a kind of crunchy lefty progressive. But and she died a couple weeks ago um of ovarian cancer. And Rich, who I know, just re- he wrote just a very touching remembrance of her, and about how they would collaborate on issues together, and she would invite him to her conferences, and he would invite her to his conferences of the Log Cabin Republicans, because they did have some shared goals. Obviously, they agreed that gay people should be equal, um, and they might have had very different strategies for how to achieve it. You know, namely, Rich thought that we should work through the Republican party and conservative movement and whatnot. And um, Urvashi, you know, was a revolutionary and believed in, you know, overturning society, but they were willing to work together and they learned from each other. Um, She understood that, you know what, having a gay man on the inside of the the Republican party and in the conservative movement is good for our cause because they're probably gonna listen more to him than they will to me, right? Um, and I just thought that that was a really remarkable relationship that we don't have much of anymore, unfortunately, that more and more we're just, you know, in all forms of life, not just political activism, but even.
0: Yeah. It's the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Scalia friendship.
1: It's the Ira Glass or William F. Buckley friendship. Exactly. And it's become almost, um, fashionable to mock those types of relationships, right? To say that. Um, this is, you know, this is of the past. We're in a new era politically. You can't be friends with these people. They're fascists or they're communists or whatever. Um, but just personally, I mean, I've always found that I've always enjoyed debate. I've always enjoyed, uh, maybe I'm just like an argumentative person, but I just, uh, you know, I was president of the debate team in high school and at Yale again, some of my fondest memories at Yale were of the Yale political union, which is a very, Unique institution. It's sort of like the if the Oxford Union met the British Parliament. So it's like a, it's like a debating society where there are parties.
0: Is it is it as stuffy? Are you wearing tails to
1: your debates? And- well, the the right wing parties do. I mean, you, you have to understand there are there are students stretching from the furthest left, probably communists, all the way to the you know neo traditional Catholic right. But every week we would come together in a lecture hall and there'd be, you know, an invited speaker from somewhere, a journalist, a professor, whomever, and we would engage in a very spirited debate. And at the end, we'd all go out for beers together. Um, and I don't know if that still happens at Yale, frankly. I have a feeling that it doesn't because I think it's this, the atmosphere has become too toxic. Um, and people aren't able to take political differences in stride or they're, they're they're not able to distinguish between a political argument and a personal attack um, and it's happened also swiftly I mean your your boss Greg Lukyanov, is obviously the expert on this having written the the coddling of co-author the coddling of the American mind but I mean for me it was very personal because you know, the, the Nicholas Christakis episode at Yale, which obviously your listeners are very familiar with. I mean, that to me was a real wake up call because that happened in 2015, and I graduated Yale in 2006. And that's nine years. And what happened in that video was something so uh, foreign and appalling to me. I mean, never in my worst nightmare when I was a student at Yale, and we had all sorts of political debates and controversies and whatnot. Um, to, see it, to see something like that occur on the Yale campus, to me, was really shocking and a sign that Something was really off um, in our in our culture.
0: Well, to cl- kind of close out the Taffel and Vade discussion, uh, you you interviewed Rich for your piece, and he said she and I created a special friendship. We were both took hits from our side for being friends, uh, but this sort of you know cross ideological personal affinity is unimaginable today. He lamented. We've lost the ability to disagree on strategies, but respect each other as we fight for the same cause. You know, it it is, it is disappointing. And I created the movie behind me, Mighty Ira, where I discuss, you know, how William F. Buckley and Ira Glasser couldn't agree on most issues, but they put those issues aside and they debated them publicly often. Uh, When it came, but when it came to things that they could agree on, well, I, um, Drug decriminalization, for example, they joined together um, to do what they considered good, and they didn't cast off those who they disagreed with as being evil, which I think is fairly fashionable today. And I'll never forget Andrew Sullivan, and it might have been on his podcast, talking about how essential it was to speak to the other side and not to dismiss them as bigots uh, when advocating for the rights. Of um, gay people. He said, if we had done that, we would have never won. We would have never been where we are today. And I think that the same goes for almost every successful movement, right? How do people actually think if they sit down and reflect and ask themselves, what is the most effective mechanism or tactic to convince people that my position is right? If vilifying them, if calling them bigots, if making them feel defensive, Uh, is in the top 50 of those tactics, I would be surprised. I don't know anyone who's changed their mind, except through self-censorship and maybe feeling cowed, but not actually changing their mind because they've been called a bigot.
1: I tell a really powerful story in that article that you mentioned that was in Barry Weiss's Substack. It's in my book as well. In 1978, there was a ballot initiative in the state of California to ban gay people from teaching in public schools. And it was winning by a very large margin. And one of the men who was running the campaign against it, a man named David Mixner, who was a left-wing Democrat, he had gotten his start in politics in the anti-Vietnam War movement, he had a pretty uh, smart idea. And he figured, well, Ronald Reagan, who's the very popular former governor of the state of California, um, he's a conservative. Uh, I also know that he comes from Hollywood, so he has gay friends. Him and Nancy have gay friends. And I think I can convince him to oppose this measure. And I'm going to try to get a meeting with him to convince him to do it. And if, he, and if I can succeed in this, then we'll be able to persuade enough of those conservatives who are probably the ones opposing this, or, or who are probably the ones supporting this measure to ban gay people from teaching in public schools. So he's able to get a meeting with Reagan he, through a through a closeted gay advisor of Reagan's, and he sits down with Reagan, and Reagan is quite receptive. And the case that he makes to Reagan is a is a conservative libertarian one. It's, for instance, he knew that Reagan had um, built a lot of his reputation, sort of battling student activists, anarchists at Berkeley when he was governor, um, and he would call them, you know, uh, anarchists and and. Uh, that they wanted to unleash anarchy on the campus. So he says, look, if you make homosexuality a fireable offense, then you're going to have all these students, you know, lodging accusations against their teachers because they're angry about a grade. You'll basically have the inmates running the asylum. Authority will break down. Um, and that's and, and you'll have all these lawsuits and you're going to be increasing the the role of the regulatory state over local school districts. So he made a very compelling case. If you're trying to convince someone who's a conservative or a libertarian why they should oppose this measure, he made a very convincing case to Reagan. He ended up convincing Reagan, and Reagan announced his opposition to it, and the measure failed. And to this day, David Mixner, who's still alive, and I interviewed him for my book, he credits Ronald Reagan almost almost single-handedly. With with reversing that measure, so that's you know that's an example of how politics is supposed to work, you know. Uh, and I feel like today, not just in politics, or any
0: advocacy for that matter,
1: no matter what you're doing. I feel like I feel like so much of journalism today is basically fan service, right? It's like you're reading journalists, you're reading newspapers or columnists, and they're not trying to persuade anyone it's just let's give red meat to my base. And that's true of the right, I think it's true of the left. There are very few people in in my business of opinion journalism, who I think are actually trying to persuade people who are persuadable, which by the way, I think a lot, if not the majority of the people in this country are persuadable. They're in that middle ground where you can convince them of something if you have a strong argument. But you know, for a variety of reasons, it's become more profitable. It's just easier. It's really—I can tell you, as someone who writes for a living, it's a lot easier just to say whatever it is you think without having to think about maybe toning it down a little or thinking through the argument in a more careful way so that you can persuade people who are might who might be in the middle. That's just or putting
0: yourself in the shoes of those who might disagree with you to figure out what their values are so that you can meet them exactly and, and meet them at their values and convince them. Uh, a shared interest.
1: I mean, yeah, it's a lot. I mean, look, we were talking about abortion earlier Uh, and I'll just be, I'll be upfront. I support the right to abortion. That said, I think there are a lot of people who are pro-choice who just assume that everyone who's pro-life is pro-life because they want to control women's bodies. They don't accept, they don't accept that for many, if not most people who are genuinely pro-life, they believe that life begins at conception, right? And to them, it has nothing to do with controlling women's bodies or they don't think of it that way right they don't think of it that way they think of it as this is a human life it has to be protected and that over that outweighs the right of a woman to terminate her pregnancy likewise there are people there are lots of pro-life people who think that pro-choice people are baby killers right and that they take pleasure in this and that they don't understand that there's any moral complexity to this whatsoever right? And so I think that's an issue where it's very easy to demonize the other side. And you can mm-hmm. go through every issue, right? Gun rights. I mean, the way the way people talk about guns in this country, there's very little attempt to understand the other the other side. Uh, and I think this is why and look, I think this is why the gay marriage movement ultimately won, is because they they realized that we have to appeal to to people at their level and we have to show them um that we are willing to be, you know, American citizens just as good as they are. We want to serve in the military. We want the same responsibilities as them. We are your sons, we're your daughters, we're your cousins, your coworkers, and that's why it was successful.
0: Yeah, your abortion debate comparison is apt because. Uh, I, I, I listen to NPR. I read the news, right? And it just seems like the two sides are talking past each other. It's like all the arguments made by the pro-choice side do not uh, act, do not address the main argument on the other side, and perhaps vice versa, right? You know, it's just it seems like they're talking past each other. Yes, but I want to I want to circle back again to what what was essentially the crux of your piece. You know, so we had the rich and Nervashi friendship. You know, we had the lobbying of uh, uh, Ronald Reagan in, in California. We had this and we had, you know, the efforts of the early gay rights activists like, you know, Frank Kameny, and Andrew Sullivan to, you know, reach across to the other side and make a moral, strong moral case. But in your piece, you say activists today do not seem interested in that. We talked about the Yale Law School uh, debate that happened back in March, where um, students advocating for tra- transgender individuals, hundreds of them, disrupted a what was a bipartisan panel on civil liberties, drowning out the conservative speaker with shouts of protect trans kids. Uh, and then when the professor presiding over the event told the crowd that their behavior was in violation of the policy, uh, they flipped her off. Um, yes. Of him or her off. I forget who exactly was the... No, uh, I think it was, was of her. It was yeah, her. That's, what I as, that's what I thought as well. But then you also talk about the Dave Chappelle example, um, and this uh, person who went up and I don't assaulted Dave Chappelle, might have tried yeah. to kill Dave Chappelle. I, I don't know. I, I think he was brought. He was charged with a misdemeanor, not a felony, which I, I found yeah. uh, pretty pretty astounding. Um, but Isaiah said Chappelle should consider first running as material by people it should affect. You say appropriately, forget the heckler's veto. This is the assailant injunction. Yeah. Um, kind of makes me sound like the, the kind of fad going through publishing right now with sensitivity readers. Um, yeah. It's like, okay, so now comedians need to run their jokes by the people that they're making the jokes about. Or maybe not making the jokes about, but you think they're making the jokes about them. Uh, intentionally missing their point. And then you cite some of our research. We've yeah done like, uh, we've pulled... Last year, I think it was like 34,000 college students across the country. And you're able to get some pretty statistically significant data from that uh, along demographic lines. And you pulled out a statistic that we didn't, you know, it wasn't a top line for us, but you went and found it. that said that LGBT students who identify as LGBT are significantly more likely to support yeah. shouting down a speaker or trying to prevent them from speaking on campus, borne out, of course, by the Dave Chappelle and the Yale incident. So yeah. it seems as though, and I don't know if this is, this is unique <laughs> to the LGBT community or it's just kind of indicative of larger liberal trends we're having in the society, you would be able to speak to that better. But uh, it, it's definitely not uh, Andrew Sullivan, Rich and Urvashi, you know, the, uh, the opposition to California Prop 6 that we've talked about earlier in this podcast.
1: Yeah, no, I think they are part of a kind of broader trend on the left where we're seeing less and less support for free speech. And I think this has to do you you would know a lot about this too, but I think as the left has sort of taken control over these cultural institutions, um, that – like I was saying at the be- at the outset of this conversation, that once you control these institutions, once you're in power yourself, you become less it, – it becomes more of a free speech for me, not for the type situation, right? Even if
0: you don't intend it to do it, just uh, Cass Sunstein's research shows that the more people you're surrounded with who are like-minded, the
1: more radicalized you get,
0: the more – um, dogmatic your positions become, because nobody challenges them, or you think that they're right and good and just, and everyone right. else who disagrees with is bad and evil, right? Well,
1: I think there's a problem with this, and we're seeing it in our politics. I mean, we're seeing a backlash to a lot of left-wing progressive orthodoxies. I mean, we're recording this on June 9th, two days after you know the recall election in San Francisco of the, dist- of the district attorney, the very far left-wing district attorney. Uh, and this is a real wake-up call or it should be a wake-up call that when you live in these ideological bubbles, um, you get a very um, incorrect impression of what's actually happening in the world. Uh, and I think that there's there, a backlash is brewing to this and it's going to, you know, we're gonna see it in November with with the way the Republicans are gonna win the House and Senate. Um, and so it's just not from from a from a political perspective, you know in the short term it might feel right. it might feel right to you know ban this speaker right or take this really ideologically extreme position to please you know some group of employees at your institution. But on the whole and in the long run, I think it's very um, self-destructive and self-defeating.
0: Well, we've learned a little bit of that in our work at the Foundation for Individual Rights and expression name has changed. Uh, over the past year, we've been doing some market research, um, both through private focus grouping and surveys, but also in market testing. We've done some campaigns that are more astute supporters will notice, lists, such as the Inez Cantor Freedom campaign and some stuff we've been doing in the New York Times. And you know, Fire institutionally opposes some of the trends that underlie cancel culture, right? Now we think they're con- run contrary to what Greg has termed a culture of free expression um but we are you know i work in washington dc i'm surrounded by people i spend time on twitter it's part of my job who you think you think of cancel culture as a pejorative um and we were wondering you know if we want to fight back against trends relating to cancel culture can we actually use the phrase do people know what it means and do people have a reaction to it that would be have a positive effect on uh what we're trying to achieve you know what our goals are the campaign which is to win liberal values small l liberal values Mm -hmm. uh and we found that the average american is overwhelmingly opposed to cancel culture yeah um and but you don't see that reflected in our media actually on on the contrary you see media put it in in quotation marks or belittle it or compare it to political correctness which i also think had a salience for people that was dismissed by uh as Christopher Hitchens might've put it, linguistic correctiveness, corrective correctness. Yeah, um, But uh, yeah, so, I mean, we, we've, we you know, as a result, we found we can win the day using it. We've leaned into it uh, to a certain extent. Um, and I think, you know, if you take what's happening at the Washington Post right now with Dave Weigel's suspension, you take the joke that he tweeted about and ask people, should the guy be suspended without pay for a month for... Uh, retweeting a joke uh, about the opposite sex, which, uh, you know, husband and wives and friends make all the time. Um, I think the overwhelming, uh, overwhelming majority would say no. Um, but you know, in the Washington post, it's a cause celeb and, uh, David, Dave Weigel doesn't, isn't working right now as a result of it. It's
1: terrible. No, it's terrible. And, um, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. I'm not going to wade into that actually because I th- I think it might get me into trouble. So I'm gonna have oh, to yeah. I'm gonna have to uh, stand up against Hunch my own. One. No, I
0: know I didn't ask you to come on to talk about Dave Weigel. I feel I only feel empowered to talk about it because uh, my boss Greg has said that in those sorts of controversies, in his conception and you know our conception at Fire of a culture of free expression, the thumb should be on the scale of. Um, free expression of charity, of the presumption of goodwill. Oh, I absolutely agree with
1: that. No, that and, I, and I know Dave, and I think that the punishment meted out to him is uh, very grave and unfair, frankly, and I'm absolutely willing to say that. And um, yeah, I think our society would benefit a lot from people being more charitable to each other in general.
0: I agree. Well, James, I think I covered everything. I wanted to – I had
1: one last question that was coming. Yeah. I,
0: I meant to ask this earlier. Ronald Reagan, right? We talk about Reagan and you know the activists appealed to his values on Prop 6 way back in the day. Um, you mentioned his, how the activists got a meeting with him through a closeted advisor. What was Reagan like? I mean, what was his position on these issues?
1: Well, I mean, it, it ended up being rather tragic, obviously, because when he becomes president, this is when the AIDS crisis – yeah. Uh, and he's really. But you said he had
0: friends. He had. You said he had gay friends. You yeah, know, had many friends. In
1: and, yeah, but one of the one of the more tragic stories I tell in the book is of uh, Rock Hudson, who was an actor, uh, quite a famous actor, who dies of AIDS in 1985. He's really the first celebrity to die of AIDS, and it really puts AIDS on the front pages in a way that we hadn't seen before up to that time. And in the papers of the Reagan Library, I discovered the draft of the statement that he and Nancy released upon Hudson's death. And I could see in Reagan's own handwriting, he's crossing out words and phrases and set in, in one case, a whole sentence um, that are ba- that to basically reduce any sort of personal connection to Hudson. Like for instance, like, you know, he crossed out profoundly saddened. Um, there's a sentence, you know, we knew him and we'll miss him dearly. That's crossed out. So this so, so the statement just becomes this very kind of like anodyne expression of regret. Um, and to me, that was like a very visible example of sort of the the real kind of lack of um, involvement in the issue and just sort of wanting it to go away and not be associated with it, the real kind of silence on AIDS. Um, so, yeah, you know, Reagan's support for anti-discrimination uh, in the 1970s, unfortunately, was not um, it, did, it did not really presage the way his administration would act with with regard to the AIDS epidemic. Well,
0: James, I think we'll leave it there. encourage folks to check out your book, which I, again, admit I have not picked up yet. I'm working through a biography of Albert Einstein right now. Yeah. Uh, and then that is also a doorstopper of a book, Walter Isaacson. It's pretty good, though. Um, but I would encourage people to check out your book, The Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. I have colleagues who are reading it right now and speak very highly of it. I'd also obviously encourage people to read the article that inspired today's conversation, The First Amendment Created Gay America. James, thanks again for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes. Most of our episodes, including this one, featured video of the conversation. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk or by liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. I hear from a lot of you keep the emails coming. I always appreciate them. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. They do help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.